Last Saturday, at our congregational meeting, we welcomed eight people into covenant membership with this church. So in order to welcome them into membership, we're going to recite some vows that help illustrate what they're doing by joining the church. And then we will all respond with our own vows in return to them. So if you're one of those eight people, David, John, Jessica, Megan, April, Brad, Samantha, and Skylar, will you stand? Okay, so be prepared to answer I do to these vows. Do you affirm that now and into the future, you are setting your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, even eternal life? I do, good. Do you vow to regulate your life and participation within this local church body according to the divine word in the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord and by his spirit? Do you further vow to do your best by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk within the Mission Fellowship fam Family Covenant at all times, holding yourself accountable to it, being willing to restore it should it be broken, holding your brothers and sisters accountable to it as well? And if you fail to walk in this manner, do you vow that you will accept the loving discipline from this church and its members with the goal of restoration to obedience to Jesus Christ? Do you take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation and in the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ within this local body, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Mission Fellowship and the entire Church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? And are you ready to join with this church in defending the gospel witness and preaching? Great. Okay, now will the members of this congregation please stand as well? Do you, the members of Mission Fellowship, acknowledge and publicly receive these new members as a gift of Christ to this church? Do you vow to love them and pray for them and work together with them in the protection and proclamation of the gospel for the good of the church and for the glory of Jesus Christ? Great. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your good work in the lives of David, John, Jessica, Megan, April, Brad, Samantha, and Skylar. We praise you for providing the means of reconciliation with you in the sacrificial love of your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the faith they have and their deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray that you would bless the commitment that they have made to you and to this congregation. We ask that they would grow in spiritual maturity and understanding of you. We pray that their testimony of your goodness in their lives would encourage others and that they would be used to build up this congregation. Lord, we share you as our Father, and so we pray that you would lead us in your perfect wisdom. We ask that you would protect us from the deception of the world. We pray that you would complete the good work that you have begun in us so that we can celebrate together when you culminate your kingdom, so that we can praise you together for all of eternity. We ask all of these things in accordance with your will and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. And would you turn with me to our first reading from this morning that John read to us, Psalm 45. We will begin there before we move into our main text from Revelation 21. Psalm 45.
being the pastor of a relatively young church, almost every summer that I have been a pastor in vocational ministry, I've had the blessing of officiating one or more weddings. I'll be doing two this summer. Each time, I am blown away at the symbolism for us as Christians and how, even in our own Western wedding rituals, we see a reflection of the old ancient Near East and Jewish rituals. In a wedding at the time of this psalm's writing, it would begin with a promise of betrothal when the future bride and bridegroom were young that was, in all senses, legally binding and could not be broken between the parents of the future bride and groom. They would then wait in anticipation at a distance from one another for the day of their wedding. But then on the day announced by the father of the groom, and that day would be announced by him alone, the groom would be sent with his wedding party to collect the bride who had been preparing herself for just such a day to show herself in spotless beauty to her husband. For she had been preparing herself for the one that would love her, sacrifice for her, protect her, and provide for her. The bridegroom would come with his party to collect his bride and to escort her back to his home where they would perform their vows, consummate their marriage, and enter into a future life together, never to be broken apart until death. It is this processional that the psalmists, inspired by the Spirit of God, picture in the love song and poetry of Psalm 45. We read it earlier, and we'll be singing it later. Traditionally, this is believed to have been written to King Solomon for his wedding to the princess of Egypt. But the wording, especially in verse 6, tells us it's actually foreshadowing something far greater. For the Jewish monarchy foreshadowed a greater monarchy, a greater kingdom, that of God's Messiah, reigning over God's chosen covenant community in eternal holy bliss as that of a husband and wife. What is amazing about this passage is that if we overlay it over the top of Revelation 19 through 22, we see that John the Revelator was given visions of a holy and divine wedding processional that captures how deeply the church is treasured and loved by our Savior and King. I encourage you to read through this psalm this week as you review Revelation 21 as well, but let me just give you the exegetical high points to introduce us to our passage from Revelation. Here in Psalm 45, in verse 1, we have an introduction to the fact that this is an inspired song given to the scribe. In verses 2 through 5, we see the warrior king in splendor and majesty, the most handsome, gracious, and blessed of all the sons of men. And he is ready for battle, but it is his righteousness and truth that slays his enemies at his feet so that he might reign. It's a beautiful parallel to what we learned in Revelation 19 of Christ on his white horse who slays the wicked with the sword of his truth. In verses 6 through 9 here in Psalm 45, we see that same warrior king and bridegroom enthroned in rule over his people with a scepter of righteousness and the power to judge wickedness, a beautiful picture of the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. And in verses 10 through 12, the bride is given great advice as she stands at the side of her groom, ready to engage in her vows. And we'll come back to this later. In verses 13 through 15, the processional from the home of the bride to the home of the groom is pictured, and it is in this marriage of the bride and the bridegroom that their offspring will be remembered for all eternity. 
and for which the nations will praise the bridegroom forever in verses 16 and 17. What a beautiful parallel to what John saw last week and we will continue to see today in Revelation 21. For it is in the marriage between the perfect bridegroom, Christ Jesus, and his prepared bride adorned with the righteousness that he has given, and this is the church, that his spiritual offspring, you and I, will stand eternally glorified in him. I want you to listen to the beauty with which the psalmist describes the bride of God in Psalm 45, verses 13 through 17. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Notice in this messianic vein that the beauty of the bride is a reflection of the majesty of the king, the one who is handsome and gracious above all the sons of men. Now, with this picture in our minds of this wedding processional and this joy with which the bridegroom goes after the bride, let's turn to our main text for this morning in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. It is to this beautiful wedding processional that we have been witness since Revelation 19, but it is now becoming clearer than ever. Last week, John spoke out of his vision of a new heaven and new earth in which all evil and sin was judged and removed. And it was there in Revelation 21 too, you can look there in your Bibles, that we caught our first glimpse of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, where it says it was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This, my friends, is the church. The overall message of the vision was that all of the covenant promises of God's word will ultimately be fulfilled in the consummated and completed church of God. Here, presented to God, purified by the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and given new life by his resurrection and conversion of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you are in Christ, this is your future. You will stand in this place one day. And just as a groom looks down the aisle and sees with joy the bride, Christ will look upon you and me, those who are in Christ, and he will have that same joy and love. And so this morning, we will get further detail on this new Jerusalem, this bride of Christ, this perfected church, in a recapitulated view of what we looked at last week. And what we will see this morning is the glory of God reflected in his completed covenant community. That's our title for this morning. The glory of God reflected in his completed covenant community. Let's read our primary text for today. It's a bit of a long one. 21.9 through 27. Let's go ahead and read it all the way through. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
Its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured the, the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Clear as crystal? Well, we're going to break it down. The first thing that we're introduced to is the beautiful appearance of the pure and strong bride of Christ. The beautiful appearance of the pure and strong bride of Christ. We see this in verses 9 through 14. John sees an angel come towards him, and specifically it is one of the seven who poured out the bowls of judgment. Now this language is parallel to the language at the beginning of chapter 17. Would you look there with me? Take your Bible, uh, just go back a couple pages in your Bible to 17 verses 1 through 2. We see the beautiful appearance of the pure and strong bride of Christ, and this is meant to be in contrast to 17. John uses this language at the beginning of, of our section today so that the hearers and readers automatically contrast the bride with the seductive prostitute of Babylon, who is one with the beast. And there's the bride, the beautiful bride of the new Jerusalem, who is one with the lamb. And so take a look there at 17, 1 through 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now look back at our text today. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Again, John uses this language so that the hearers and readers automatically contrast the seductive prostitute of Babylon, who is one with the beast, with the beautiful bride of the new Jerusalem, who is one with the Lamb. 
The prostitute of Babylon, you'll notice, originates from the chaos beneath, this idea of the many waters, the seas, and she is under judgment. She is the one entangled with earthly kingdoms and kings who are so immersed in their greed and violence and thirst for power that they are drunk with deception from Satan. You will recall that this is the counterfeit community of all who have themselves and ultimately the adversary of God as their own Lord. This is the counterfeit church made up of all those who would rather be Lord over their own lives than have Christ as Lord. And as we look back at Revelation 21, 9 through 10, we have a comparison. The bride instead originates in the peaceful and beautiful abode of God, heaven itself. And rather than being seated on the chaotic waters that twist and churn in violence, the bride is established never to be moved upon a great high mountain. It is symbolic of the reverse, uh, excuse me, reverence and worship that will originate there towards God, but also a statement of the nearness of God to God's covenant people, a perfection and completion of that which was established at Mount Sinai when God first established and called his assembly, his ecclesia, his people. In contrast to the prostitute of Babylon, the bride of New Jerusalem is betrothed to one husband, the word bride, you'll notice there in verse 9, is capitalized because there is only one bride for the one bridegroom, Jesus Christ. There is only one church. It means that she is engaged, awaiting the day of consummation, but also in that process, she is being prepared to be the wife of the Lamb. She is awaiting her beloved in monogamous faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, permeates the description of Christ in his church. One wife to one husband. God's divinely ordained good order that we as Christians are called to declare and protect by our sexual purity, our faithfulness in marriage, and our loyalty to Christ played out in our faithfulness to the local church to which we belong. Is it no wonder, is it any wonder, that Satan is trying to destroy not only marriage and the family, but also sexuality and gender. He wants to destroy this picture. This is the one true covenant community of God. And John is making it clear that a person cannot inhabit both communities. You cannot be part of the prostitute and part of the bride. Either way, or excuse me, either they will devote themselves in monogamous unity to the bridegroom or they will fall into immorality with the beast. Friends, let me phrase it this way. Either you will devote yourself in monogamous unity to the bridegroom or you will fall into immorality with the beast. John sees the bride, the collective body of Christ, also as New Jerusalem, a city. He hears, come let me show you the bride, and he turns and he sees a city. This mixture of symbols has been used before, even in Revelation 14, where John was taken to Mount Zion and saw the perfected saints standing with the Lamb, radiating, reflecting God's glorious character. And they are pictured there as 144,000 purified virgin men, speaking of the purity of the church in preparation for God. It is this new Jerusalem, this perfected community of saints that God will be glorified in and his grace and his mercy will shine forth to the cosmos. 
It is in this perfect purification of his bride that the power and grace of God will be seen. This will be the fulfillment of all promises to his covenant people. The book of the prophet Isaiah is full of such promises. Here is one that this image and vision fulfills. This is Isaiah 42, or excuse me, 4, 2 through 5. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. It is in the people of God, redeemed, forgiven, glorified, unified, Jew and Gentile, unified in the Spirit. It is in this people, this perfected people, that God's glory will be ultimately declared for eternity. This is the radiance to which John is referring. You see, God dwells in unapproachable light, and the reflection, as though jasper or crystal, indicates that God's people will be so near to him and so purified in their crystal reflection that we will reflect his glory to the cosmos. By our obedience and righteousness that is complete, we will one day perfectly reflect the beauty of God to all the cosmos. Now, our reflection is imperfect. It's there. It's inaugurated, but it's imperfect. But one day, we will perfectly reflect the one who in Revelation 4 was noted as having the beauty of jasper and carnelian. We will reflect the lamb. Right now, our reflection is cloudy, amen? It is there, but it is like that of a beautiful mirror that's been dipped in mud. It's got some dirt on it. We have been transformed to reflect, but we are still a work in progress. Our journey of sanctification in this life is just that, figuring out what it is like to allow Christ to remove the grime through conviction, through suffering, through accountability in community, while trying to let our true redeemed selves speak most clearly. One day this work will be completed, and our old selves will die with our mortal bodies, and we will be resurrected to firmly reflect God's goodness. What a wonderful day that will be, amen? All of the cloudiness will fade away, and we will reflect him perfectly. Well, the next thing that we notice in this description in Revelation 21 is that this city is upon a mountain, and this is fortress imagery. We will see further that it is symbolically pictured as a vast cubic structure that emerges from this mountain and has a great high wall that no one can get over with angelically guarded gates. Take a look there again at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sun, uh, sons of Israel were inscribed. In the ancient world, this was the ultimately secure location to live. 
Every king wanted a mountain fortress. Herod had one there in Israel near the Dead Sea. For it was near impossible for an enemy to climb the mountain, then the walls, and somehow not be picked off by the archers on the wall defending the city. To have a fortress of this magnitude and strength speaks of complete peace and security, a firmness of presence that cannot be moved or shaken. And this too is a fulfillment of the promises made to Israel and the people of the earthly Jerusalem. They thought it would be fulfilled in an earthly way, but the, the, the prophets, especially Isaiah, were saying one day this will be fulfilled in a way you can't even comprehend. Isaiah 33:20 says this, Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. It seems like no matter how they fortify Jerusalem, on the earthly city Jerusalem, their enemies would always seem to overthrow them, even ending in the breaking down of the very wall and structure of Jerusalem, brick by brick by the Romans in 70 AD an event from which all cultural Jews are still waiting to recover, thinking they need a physical temple. But for God's true Israel, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles who find their salvation in the perfect temple of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice, we are not waiting to recover an earthly temple in which we can worship. For we have our temple. We are enrolled in its worship now. And we are simply awaiting the day when it comes to full consummation and completion in the presence of God forever at Christ's return. We are that temple in which Christ dwells and in which his sacrifice is made effective. We see this security also in the picture of the gates. In the old Jerusalem, there were four main gates, but in this perfect Jerusalem that is both a people and a location, the people dwell so securely and safely that there are three gates on each side that never close because all evil has been done away with in judgment. Evil and sin has been removed so God's people can no longer, even if they wanted to, worry about his adversary. Notice also that this perfect, uh, perfect Jerusalem, this fortified place of peace that radiates the beauty of God, is made up of Old and New Testament saints, all who look to the work of the Lamb to gain entrance to his presence. We know his name. They looked forward to one they did not know the name of. The true Israel of God that has been created in the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, Old Testament and New Testament saints. Look at verse 13. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. John says that the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, their names were inscribed. And then verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This layout of the three uh, of the th three groups in each direction is similar to the encampment of Israel in the wilderness. You can see their layout in Numbers 2, for example. Three tribes in each cardinal direction with the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies at its center. But there they were not secure and they were open to attack. But here in God's eternal presence and with the Gentiles having been grafted in and with all evil removed, they are eternally secure and safe. Friends, there is no anxiety, no worry, no stress, no concern, for God will be intimately with us and we will be with our God. Do you long for that day? What a day that will be, O oh Lord. How we long for that day to come. How we long for your return. 
Notice one last thing with me before we move on. Notice that it is the apostles of the New Testament covenant community that are the 12 foundations. Chronologically, one would think that the tribes of Israel would be the foundation for the gates of the apostolic teaching of the gospel. For they came before the gospel, that is the admission, if you will, to God's presence. But Jesus, through John the Revelator, is helping us see, as he has done throughout Revelation, that the Old Testament was foreshadowing God's true people made up of Jews, yes, but also representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God's plan was always to redeem all the earth. The Apostle Paul understood this well when he wrote that the examples of the Old Testament were meant to point us to the fullness of God's work of redemption, and that is, dear friends, the fullness of the church. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In other words, what is the plan from Genesis to Revelation? The God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Friends, the plan since the beginning of the ages was not to save you so that you can have your best life now or so that you can go to the good place when you die. The plan since the beginning of the ages was to assemble God's people so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth for all eternity. That's the plan. How do you view the church? Is your Christianity just about you? Or is it about God working in the midst of his church? This new Jerusalem, this body of Christ that makes up his bride, the wife of God, is the true covenant community of God that will emerge from what we know as the church on earth. And we participate in this covenant community, this bride, this wife of God, through our covenant faithfulness in the midst of the local church. You are participating in this right now. Well, John continues the imagery of this radiant church as he next sees in the vision the measurements and materials of the eternally secure New Jerusalem. The measurements and materials of the eternally secure New Jerusalem. Let's read verses 15 through 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height. Uh, sorry, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. An interpretive key to this entire section is the reminder we are given in verse 17 that we are dealing with symbolism here. John notes that the human measurement with which the angel measured the New Jerusalem also has an angelic equivalent. And this speaks to the two levels of meaning that we have been shown throughout Revelation, the earthly meaning, a symbol that then refers to a heavenly truth. And this section, perhaps more so than any other, heavily relies upon symbolism that points to spiritual truths. The angel who is speaking with John in this vision, has a measuring rod. You can think of it as a tape measure, so to speak. 
Now, biblically, this points us to two distinct places in Scripture. One is here in Revelation, in Revelation 11, 1 through 3. Would you go back there with me? Take a look at it. Revelation 11, 1 through 3. John himself, here in Revelation 11, 1 through 3, is given a measuring rod like a staff and is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, you can go back and you can re-listen to when we taught through this section. Its, uh, its symbolism is dense, as you can see. But this imagery, you might recall, pictures the church during the church age, the age in which we now exist, the age between the two comings of Jesus. It is a time of persecution by the unbelieving world who is in league with Satan and his agents of chaos in the midst of this worldly system. But it's also a time of security for the saints because we know that even in martyrdom and death, we are safe in the worship of Christ as our Savior and King. Even death cannot conquer us. And so we, pictured as the two witnesses in Revelation 11, we, the church, Proclaim and prophesy the truth of God's word and gospel so as to draw the elect and to harden the hearts of those in rebellion against God. But if we now go back with this imagery to our main text in Revelation 21, go ahead and turn back there. We compare it to that image in Revelation 11 and we realize that here in Revelation 21, notice something is missing. There is no outer courtyard. And the evil of the nations has been judged and removed. All that remains is just the new Jerusalem, itself a temple because of the intimacy of God with his people. And the righteousness of the nations given by God in grace will be brought into the new Jerusalem. God has ordained its boundaries and there is no outer courtyard in which evil will flourish or survive. In fact, the entirety of the city is now the place of worship. Now, even more specifically, you can see that the symbolic measurements describe a cube. In the Temple of Solomon, the Holy of Holies, the place where the tangible Shekinah glory of God dwelt with Israel, you might know it as the place where the tabernacle, or excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant sat, it was also a square according to the description given in the Old Testament. And we see elsewhere that it is symbolized as a square sanctuary. Now, John is picturing the entirety of the city as the place where the dwelling place of God overlays the dwelling place of man. And so the city is now the temple, but even more specifically, the entirety of the city is the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells. Now, the second place this text, this idea of measuring points us, is to the imagery of the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, a place I'm sure you already have memorized. For there, as we have discussed previously, is the intensely detailed blueprints of a future, perfected, inviolable temple of Yahweh, in which he will eternally dwell with his people and be their God. Right at the beginning of this section in Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel writes this. See if this sounds familiar. In the visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I will show you. 
for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. The detail of the measurements using this measuring rod and the blueprints that follow might be considered by many a section of Scripture to skip over because we get the summary point and we don't quite understand all the detail. But to read through the intense detail of the temple in that section is to understand the detailed providence and sovereignty over which God will fulfill his redemptive plan. You see, if the new Jerusalem is also the perfect temple of God, which is also the bride of Christ, his body, then it is made up of the individual stones of each of us and our brothers and sisters throughout all time and space. We all, like rocks in a rock polisher, are being refined daily to be fit snugly for service as his priests in the midst of his holy of holies for all eternity. Not only does this tell us that we are secure eternally in him, friends, but it also tells us that we can entrust every piece of our lives to him. Every tear, every suffering, every joy, every celebration, every conflict, every reconciliation, every sin in which he gives us over in loving discipline to ourselves, every sin in which there is repentance. We can literally entrust everything to his providential care. Those who are his, we who suffer in this life, can entrust ourselves to our faithful creator because he is using all of it to prepare a people among whom he can dwell for eternity. Each of us will be able to look back on our lives and see how God refined us in even the most awful situations. Our only duty then is to entrust our lives to him, to pursue Christ and the good works and holiness that he has given us, without which none of us will see the Lord. And lastly, as we look at these measurements, we see that the numbers used are multiples of 12. 12 times 12 is 144. 12 times 1,000 is 12,000. Each of these speak to the completeness and the perfection of the work. The same thing we saw in chapter 7, which pictured 12 tribes of 12,000 members as the perfected, sealed people of God, being led by the Lord through this life. And the size of this cube, based on varying views of the cubit and the stadia, would render it between 1,300 and 1,500 miles square. Its enormity speaks to the miraculous nature of all God is accomplishing in building his church and placing us in a renewed heaven and earth. It speaks to the immensity of his redemptive work. What a beautiful picture. Well, we see in our main text of Revelation 21 not only the measurements of the New Jerusalem, but also the materials of the New Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. 
I personally really hoped that the pearls were at least seven feet tall or else I'm going to bump my head all the time. <laughs> but they're big pearls nonetheless. And John here lists 12 stones, eight of which are explicitly stated as being the same stones as those on the high priest's breastpiece of judgment in the Old Testament. You can see it in Exodus 28 and 39 if you want to look it up. The remaining four stones are rough equivalents. So in essence, he's got here the same 12 stones. And each of these jewels on the breastplate of the high priest symbolized one of the tribes of Israel. But with Christ as our great high priest, we no longer need a representative to enter the presence of God for us. We are now part of the people of God, the bride of Christ. And as such, we are, as the true church, the true Israel, we are the true covenant community of God's people. And the symbolism of these jewels as the foundation of the New Jerusalem also assures our position as priests worshiping our God and serving him for all time. Recall that it was the high priest alone who could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. But because of the redemptive and perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we are all granted entry into the very tangible presence of God. We will all be close to God beyond what we can imagine or understand for the entirety of the new heaven and new earth will be the holy of holies and we will never need come out of it. And the second thing is just as these jewels beautifully reflect light that is before them, we will perfectly reflect the glory of God. And all of this is in contrast to the prostitute of Babylon because in comparison, if you'll recall, this is from Revelation 17.4. The woman was, woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. We see both the prostitute and the bride, the New Jerusalem here, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. But notice that the prostitute has put these things on herself, on her own works, to cover up her sickness so that she might try and seduce she will use this to seduce and be joined to whomever will fulfill her selfish desires to elevate herself. But in contrast, the bride is given this adornment by the bridegroom, and it is given as a symbol of the reflection of her covenant faithfulness and intimacy to the bridegroom, the lamb, as the Lord of her life. If you are a person who thinks, I seem to fall more in line with the prostitute than I do with the bride because of my past, friends, if Christ has purified you, you are pure. He has cleansed you. He has made you his own. Stand firm in him. Her beauty, the bride of the church, is not a beauty that fades, but is that which is seen in her by the bridegroom that loves her with his own life. And as such, she reflects his beauty. And that is what we see in our last section the glory of God reflected in the worship of his true church. The glory of God reflected in the worship of his true church. Let's read verses 22 through 27 again. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Let's pause there. In the Old Testament, Israel's greatest fear was that God would leave them and that he would not protect them against their enemies. An example is in Zechariah 2 through 5. 
God promises that he will not do that. He says, I will be here, uh, be to her, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. He says, one day I will put that fear outside of you because I will be with you. And that is what we see pictured in Revelation 21. What John sees here is that God's promises to his people are fulfilled in the eternal future of his church in their new resurrected bodies amongst the redeemed heaven and earth. Friends, do you not realize that God needs to do nothing more but return, resurrect, judge, and eternity begins? There is no need for another state of Israel. There is no need for an earthly temple. There is no need for a seven years of tribulation. There is no need for a millennium. All of this says he will return. He will resurrect. He will judge, and eternity moves forward. There is no promise that will not be left fulfilled in this eternal home of Christ's church made up of Jew and Gentile. There will be no need for a physical building that serves as a temple or the sacrifices within it because Christ has fulfilled it all himself. He is the perfect sacrifice that takes away our sins as the spotless lamb that was slaughtered in our place on the cross to take on our sin and the penalty it deserves. To go back to Jewish rituals is actually to say, oh, there's something more that needs to be done. Christ has fulfilled it all. That is why we gather on his day to celebrate his feast, on his Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath rest he has given us. He is the perfect temple, for it was in his flesh in which the Spirit of God tabernacled or dwelt so that God could walk among his creation. We need nothing else. And when Christ is with his people, raised up and seated as Lord over his covenant community, we have no need and will have no need in the future for symbols or pictures anymore because he will be our God and we will be his people. We will see him face to face. All mystery will disappear and we will know him. Never again will we long to know the Lord, for everyone will know the Lord in fullness. No more will we see him through a glass dimly, for our flesh and the deception of the enemy of God will be done away with. And we will stand in absolute faith and truth and love with our Lord God in the midst of his restored creation. Do you long for that day? As much as we do long for that day to come in perfect unity with God, brothers and sisters, he has clearly proclaimed in his word that we don't have to wait completely because he has already inaugurated this truth. He is here among us and within us as his body. His spirit dwells amongst his people. And since that is the truth, what sort of people ought we to be with regard to holiness, with regard to reverence and joy and love? Friends, if you say you believe in the Bible, then the Bible declares that today and every Sunday that his church gathers in local expression of the larger global church, Christ is among his people. Is that how you view this gathering? If you heard... Jesus is over at the fairgrounds. Would you get there late? Would you check your phone while you're visiting with him? Would you get up to go to the bathroom? No, we would be so in awe of his presence that nothing else would matter. Friends, is that how you view the gathering of his local church? 
The assembly of his people is sacred to the Lord. Is it sacred to you? For I fear that it's not amongst most Christians today. Is it sacred to us? Because it's sacred to him. He loves his church. Do you love his church? John finishes with a few more characteristics of what the imperfect church today, where we do get up to use the bathroom, and it's okay. Where we do check our phones, that's not okay. Where we do show up late, the imperfect church. He takes the imperfect church and he says, one day we will be perfected. Praise God for that because we're all imperfect, aren't we? He says there will be no need for an external source of light. We cannot say that this means the eternal new heavens and earth will not have a sun, for this is predominantly symbolic like the rest of Revelation. But what we can say is that this shows that God will permeate all of creation so that the light of his truth will finally flood throughout the cosmos and it will be seen as his people reflect his righteousness and his redemption. And in this, he will prove true to his promises that he made to Israel. For example, Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Rather than the world fighting against the lordship of Christ, the kings of the earth, the leaders of the various nations and tribes and tongues that worship Christ will welcome, uh, will welcome the chance to covenant with him. And they will rejoice in reflecting the goodness of the Lamb, for the kingdom of darkness that seduced them previously into desiring power above obedience to God will be gone, pictured by the removal of symbolic night. And the gates will always be open. For the first century Roman or Greek city, this would have been a bad thing. This would have meant sure disaster. It would have meant being raided by robbers or overthrown by a competing tribe or city. And so this, again, speaks to the security, the inviolability of the future relationship status of God's people with him. The very thing we lost at the fall, reconciled relationship with our creator, was the very thing that Christ regained by his redemptive work on the cross, it is the very thing we have inaugurated now, but that we long to be completed in fullness. This perfect and pure reconciliation with our creator God will be accomplished in this day. And God will have proven too, true to his promises to Israel. In Isaiah 26, 1 through 2, he says this, In that day the song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And lastly, we see in verse 27, as with our text last week, John is told the limits of the populace that will dwell in this new Jerusalem. For there is a group that is inside the city that is included, and there is a group that is excluded. For this is the place of the people of God. And it is a promise that is meant to bring security to his true people and conviction to those who say that they are Christians, but show by their actions that they are not. Look at verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 52.1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. 
Friends, that is not a discussion of physical circumcision or physical cleanliness. It is a discussion of covenant. You are either covenanted to God's church or you are not. You are either part of his covenant people or you are not. And only his people declare if you are covenanted. We do not get to individually declare that we are covenanted to his people. Those who are Christ will hear his voice through his word and through his people living in obedience to that word, and they will listen and follow. Those who are not Christ will kick against the goads and choose to walk as lords of their own life, suffering eternal exclusion from the presence of God and his people. For Jesus' true church, the exclusion of those who are not his but claim to be will be a blessing in that they will no longer hinder living in perfect relationship with Christ and those who are truly his. But friends, this should break our hearts. And it should call us, who are his, to call those who are playing around with this exclusion in love to repent. A church that does not call one another to repent when sin is present is a church that does not love its people. And so we see in Revelation 21, we've covered the whole chapter. What will eternal heaven look like? Well, according to Jesus thus far through John the Revelator, it will be a redeemed creation of new heaven and new earth. It will be a place where God dwells in covenant unity and love with his people. And we who are part of the true church will never be moved because we will live in security and strength as the inviolable people of God. And we will finally, perfectly radiate God's goodness and covenant faithfulness and love for all eternity. In this eternal future, the glory of God will be reflected in his completed covenant community. Friends, if this is what we are destined to be, what sort of people ought we to be today? For it will not just stop and then start anew, but what we are today will grow into and become fully present at that moment of resurrection. As we exist in the here and now, we must ask ourselves, is this the direction we are headed as a local church? An expression of this larger bride of Christ. Does this faithfulness and security and strength and reflection of Christ characterize us now? And if not, what do we each need to individually change so that it does characterize us? Mission Fellowship, does this characterize us? Well, perhaps we should go back to Psalm 45 and get that instruction and see the advice that God has for the betrothed bride. We have seen the picture in 21, but we're left with the need for some application. And so we see back in Revelation 45 that God speaks advice to the betrothed bride for the king who will sit on the throne for all eternity. He speaks this in preparation for the wedding day in which she will be one with the king whose throne is forever and ever. He speaks to this bride of Revelation 21. Now, a wonderful man, a wonderful theologian, James Montgomery Boyce, helps us see three pieces of advice in Psalm 45. Let me first read it here. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. 
Again, James Montgomery Boyce gives us three pieces of advice that he exegetes from this passage. The first thing is that we must repent from that which is fading away. Leave behind your father's house and your people. So it's the same thing that he said to Abraham. Bonhoeffer's quote comes to mind, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Abraham was called to leave his family, his culture, and idolatry. And Jesus said that if one will follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow. If we are to prepare ourselves for the day we have seen in Revelation 21, we need to leave behind the worldly motivations, expectations, and activities that used to seduce our humanity and the worldly relationships that do not call us to holiness. We must leave them behind. Not partially, but altogether. This is what repentance is. Friends, what do you need to leave behind that God has been asking you to do the entirety of your Christian walk so that you can more purely pursue Christ? What are those in your life that love you, saying you need to leave behind, but yet you refuse to do so? We need to leave behind that which is fading away. The second thing in Psalm 45, the advice given to the, the one who is to be the bride of the king, is to submit in worship to the Lord, to bow down to him. If our eternal future is to engage in corporate worship of our Lord, what priority should we make that corporate worship now? If our eternal future is to reflect the glory of Christ and his gospel, shouldn't we have the same motivation here and now? One that calls us to encourage one another in holiness and call one another to reconciliation when conflict occurs. It should call to us to ask one another as a body and as individuals, where are our lives? Where are our relationships? Where is this church not reflecting the holiness and glory of Christ? And then we should bow down in worship, not partially, but with face to the floor completely on the ground in worship. And third, in Psalm 45, the instruction given to the bride is to look ahead to the glory which is coming, to keep your eyes on eternity. Friends, read and reread chapters 21 and 22 in Revelation and see that those who are in Christ are intimately connected and participating in the bride of Christ, his church. Every Sunday, we get a chance to participate in a living parable that speaks to our future. Author Matt Merker says this about the cor corporate worship we enact on Sundays. Corporate worship is a foretaste of the new creation, where God's people will forever minister to one another in perfect love. Friends, do you see this as a foretaste of that perfect day? If you don't, why not? Ask the Lord to change your heart so that you view this gathering as he does. Hans, you're just trying to get us to come more so you have more people that listen to you talk. You're trying to come because it's just a checkbox. You're trying to say that we get into heaven because we go to church. False, false, and false. Friends, if I had admittance to the best party that ever existed and the host to it said, invite everyone you love because it's going to be great. And guess what? We're going to have practice parties that lead up to it. 
and I didn't invite you, how loving would I be? Corporate worship is a foretaste of the new creation where God's people will forever minister to one another in perfect love. Friends, you are invited. When Christ calls those that are his to gather in assembly and worship him, are we truly practicing for that future ministry to God and one another, or is it for ourselves? Are we preparing ourselves by allowing Christ to refine us and sanctify us in the wisdom of his word and in the fire of suffering and in the struggle of community? I pray that we are and that Christ would break us corporately or individually if our hearts are even in the least hardened to that refinement. The Apostle Paul pictures this refinement well. In our earlier reading from 1 Corinthians, he says, everything will be tested to see whether it's eternal or whether it's not. Another example of what Paul says is in Ephesians 5, and we'll end this up, end with this. Paul is calling the married men of the Ephesian church to lay down their lives for their wives and to lead their wives in Christ as a picture to the watching world of how Christ loves his church. He says here in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters, in our midst, Christ is doing this very same thing. He is using this light momentary affliction we call life and the struggles that come with it in the midst of an imperfect church to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Let's willingly submit ourselves to him and to his bride, to his church, as he faithfully plays out that preparation. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Jesus, I love the fact that you use so much symbolism to show us what eternity will be like because our tiny, small human brains cannot comprehend the riches you have in store for us. And Lord, we're so thankful for your word that has shown us that those riches are not the earthly materials that our greed in this life desires, but the riches are you. And the riches are your people. Jesus, refine our hearts as we take communion and as we sing corporate worship to you and to one another so that we can see ourselves and one another as riches and so that we can truly understand that you are the most wonderful among, among all the sons of men, that you are the bridegroom for whom we have been preparing ourselves from the day of our salvation, and you have been preparing us since before the foundations of the earth. Lord, help us to drop our blinders so that we can see that that is the very thing we declare as we take communion as your family and people with you leading us at the head of the table. 
Thank you, Lord, for this picture. And let it, please, please, Lord, let it affect how we operate and act and think and see today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.